0: Polly Murray is the legal trailblazer you've probably never heard of, a civil rights activist and a women's rights activist whose work was the foundation for landmark Supreme Court cases. Her life consisted of so many firsts, among them, California's first black deputy attorney general in 1945, the first black person to earn a doctorate of jurisprudence at Yale Law School in 1965, and the first black woman to be ordained an Episcopal priest in 1977. So why is a woman who was at the forefront of the modern civil rights and women's rights movements so little known, so little acknowledged? A new biography may help put Murray into the history books, Jane Crow, The Life of Pauli Murray. The author, Rosalind Rosenberg, who is a professor of history emerita at Barnard College, joins us. Rosalind Murray faced blatant racism and sexism throughout her life. What drove her? I think a couple of things. The first was that she was born into a family that was part
1: of the long civil rights movement going back to decades before the Civil War. So she was raised with a very strong sense of her place in history and a strong sense that racism and sexism were actually getting worse in her youth. The teens, when she was a young child, were the nadir of Jim Crow in the South. But she knew that during the Civil War and and afterwards that amendments had been added to the Constitution that made those Jim Crow laws unconstitutional. So from a very early age, she had the sense that there was a basis on which to right the injustices that were experienced by African Americans and especially African American women of whom she was one. But there was another reason, and that was a secret that she wrestled with all of her life. And that was the firm conviction from early childhood that she was a boy And this was a conviction that routinely got her into difficulties because no one else would accept that she was inwardly male. And the rejection and frustration that she experienced in that very personal struggle, I'm convinced, became displaced into these other areas in which she could actually accomplish gains for civil rights and for women's rights in particular.
0: She seemed to be ahead of her time, yet she never garnered the credit that others did. For example, she was arrested in 1940 for refusing to move to the back of the bus in Virginia, 15 years before Rosa Parks ignited a bus boycott in Alabama for doing the same thing. Was she just too far ahead of her time?
1: Well, that certainly was one of the reasons that she wasn't well known. There were other pioneers, Bayard Rustin and James Farmer, who were doing similar things at the same time. But when people fight against injustice individually, it's very difficult to have an impact and certainly to be remembered. So it wasn't until the civil rights movement gained momentum that it was possible to gain recognition. But Murray, unlike Rustin, who became a principal organizer of the March on Washington in 1963, was not as well known because she tended to work behind the scenes. And some of her most influential work was done in writing. So she influenced Thurgood Marshall, for instance, and provided the framework for the successful argument in Brown versus Board of Education. And she did the same for Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the case in 1971, the first case to get to the Supreme Court, Reed v. Reed, in which the Supreme Court accepted the argument that gender
0: was analogous to race and therefore protected under the 14th Amendment. She wrote a book on states' laws on segregation that Justice Thurgood Marshall, when he was the executive director of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, called the Bible of Civil Rights Litigators. Tell me what her legal scholarship was that was used by Marshall in the landmark Brown v. Board of Education case that she never got credit for.
1: Was a paper that she wrote in her senior year of law school at Howard Law School, a paper that elicited raucous laughter from her classmates, all of them men, and prompted her to bet the professor in the class, Spotswood Robinson, that Plessy versus Ferguson, the 1890s case that established the principle of separate but equal, that Plessy would be overturned in 25 years. And indeed, Plessy was overturned in Brown in only 10 years, and it was overturned because Murray was able to persuade Robinson and Thurgood Marshall that they were approaching race discrimination in a way that was destined to not ultimately be successful. In other words, that they were trying to persuade courts to make black institutions equal to white. And she said that they should be attacking separation per se. And her argument was that segregation itself was illegal under the 14th Amendment because it arbitrarily categorized a group of people – and subordinated them to those in power. That was the original understanding of the framers of the 14th Amendment, that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws, and that categorizing and subordinating people either in separate schools or by forcing them to the back of a bus was per se
0: unequal. Rosalind, your book is entitled Jane Crow, a term Murray herself coined. What did it mean to her? Jim
1: Crow was a term that Murray coined when she was at Howard Law School in the early 1940s. All the other students were male. She'd come to Howard to train as a civil rights lawyer, and all the other students had come for the same reason. She could not understand why these men who understood so well the injustice of racial discrimination could not see the parallel of gender discrimination. So they were fighting Jim Crow. But they didn't see that Jane Crow, as she termed it, was just as problematic. She meant by that discrimination on the basis of gender, but more broadly, she saw racial discrimination and gender discrimination and also economic discrimination as interconnected. And Jane Crow was a term that she used to describe her own life and the struggles that she confronted, but also as a term to capture the parallel between race discrimination and gender discrimination.
0: One of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's early achievements as a woman's advocate at the ACLU was winning the Supreme Court case you mentioned Reed v. Reed in 1971. And she credits Murray on the brief. Tell me about Murray's contribution to that. Murray's
1: contribution to that case was largely through her writing, especially a law review article that she wrote with a colleague, Mary Eastwood, and published in 1965. It was called Jane Crow and the Law. And that article summarized the writings of the last two decades that Murray had done in explaining the ways in which gender discrimination, paralleled race discrimination, and was therefore illegal, for the same reasons that race discrimination was. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg read that article and saw it as a way of extending the victory in Brown to a victory for for women in the case of Reed v. Reed.
0: There are so many firsts in her life. She was California's first black deputy attorney general in 1945, the first black person to earn a doctorate of jurisprudence at Yale Law School, the first black woman to be ordained an Episcopal priest in 1977. Do you think that there was something in her that wanted to crush barriers, and so she kept going even to the point of entering the priesthood?
1: I think that's, that's very true. She was a driven person, and she was driven by this intersection of the racial prejudice that she fought, the gender prejudice that she fought, and the desperate economic conditions under which she lived. She left the South after high school to escape Jim Crow, came to New York, and graduated from Hunter College, then a college for women, into the Great Depression. She was malnourished much of her life. So she was always exquisitely attuned to and concerned about these multiple discriminations, not only how they affected her individually, but how they affected others throughout the world. She was really a pioneer in human rights.
0: There were so many roles she played that I was not aware of. She was one of the founders of the National Organization for Women. She was appointed by Eleanor Roosevelt to the President's Commission on the Status of Women. This adds to the mystery of why most people don't know her part in the women's rights or civil rights movements. Well,
1: I think a lot of it has to do with the very phenomenon of Jane Crow. It's hard to be African-American in this society. It's hard to be a woman in this society. It's doubly hard to be an African-American woman in this society. So I hope that this book can correct that loss to history of a really pivotal and highly influential figure.
0: Murray wrote an autobiography but left out her struggles with her sexuality and gender identity. But you write about this in your biography. Tell us about the profound effect it had on her.
1: Murray was born in 1910, and she, she knew from early childhood that she felt like a boy. And by the time she was in her 20s, she read everything she possibly could on uh, the, the subject, which wasn't a lot. I mean, the term transgender and transsexual did not exist. There certainly was no social movement to support transgender people. But there was a literature of sexology of whom the foremost figure was Havelock Ellis. She read Havelock Ellis and was very, very much supported by what Ellis had to say, which is that we all are male and female to varying degrees. And some people, he argued, were pseudo-hermaphrodites, people who had the characteristics of a external characteristics of one sex and the internal characteristics of another sex. And Murray believed that that was what she was. But whenever she would confide in a friend that she was a pseudo-hermaphrodite, the friend would say, oh, that's ridiculous. And so she would clam up but she went to every doctor she could find, endocrinologist, anyone who was dealing with issues of gender identity at the time, and no one would help her. They said, you're a normal female. She asked for testosterone, and the doctor said, we're not going to give you testosterone. We'll give you estrogen, but we won't give you testosterone. She was struggling at a time when there was just zero support for what she believed very strongly she was. That was tough.
0: Is that why she left the struggles about her gender identity out of her autobiography? She had long ago come to the conclusion that she wouldn't be accepted. By the time she
1: had finished her memoir, she was a priest, and she believed that if she were open about her sexuality and gender identity, that she would not have any more opportunities to give sermons, to participate in academic seminars. I and mean, she depended upon this work in order to feed herself. So it was 1985 when she died at the age of 74, pancreatic cancer, died quite suddenly. And the memoir was published two years later, in 1987. But this was still a a period in which to be transgender was still to be a social outlaw. And she just couldn't take that risk.
0: Of all her achievements, what do you think Murray would most like to be remembered for?
1: Well, Murray's grandfather, uh, African American abolitionist who fought in the Civil War, had four daughters and a granddaughter. And he told them all, you have to have more than one career because you never know when one will fail. And so Murray was many things. So I'm struggling to think, okay, what was the most important? I think if Murray were speaking in my stead, she would say that the most important thing in her life was that she survived. And her most important contribution was to attack the the idea of racial and gender categories as arbitrary and limiting and ultimately unjust. But it would be difficult to say which of those was more important because she experienced them as equally important. And she did so many different things in her life, it's hard to settle on a single thing, except perhaps that core idea, that arbitrary categories that have no clear barriers are inherently unjust.
0: Rosalind, how long did it take you to write the book and do the research? Oh, I'm embarrassed to say. It took two decades
1: to write it. In part, it was because I had so much difficulty trying to figure out how to convey the aspects of Murray's life that she found most difficult. And in part because it just took a long time to get through the 135 boxes of materials that she left to the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe and Harvard University.
0: And Rosalind, what would you like readers to come away with about Murray after reading your book? Something that she said
1: in one of her final sermons, that there is no black and white, there is no male and female, there is no north and south, there is in Christ love and reconciliation. And I think at a time when the country is so polarized, I would want people to know that Polly Murray fought all of her life against great odds for basic human rights and acceptance of all people ought to be different.
0: Thank you so much for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Rosalind Rosenberg, the author of Jane Crow, The Life of Polly Murray.